Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Glory. Robert Gould Shaw leads the U.S. Civil War's first all-black volunteer company, fighting prejudices from both his own Union Army and the Confederates. It is the perennial high school movie you watch for extra credit film this week. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I never saw this one. I... Neither of us have seen this. That's the sad oh, part. Oh, I thought you had seen it. No, I've never seen this movie before. I just know of it because it was constantly an extra credit movie and I never watched it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I thought you had seen it. No, um, the only thing I knew of this film, other than that it was a Civil War film, was, you know, the very famous scene with Denzel Washington. Yeah, I didn't even know that. And yeah. you know why? Because it was rated R. Hello. Fair. I just remember him being on Oprah and talking about like, I don't know, like raising his son. And then like there was a joke that like, I just make my son watch the scene from Glory. <laughs> <laughs> like so just and it was a total joke, but it was just like, what? Well, I mean, you know, it, it's not too bad because it turns out this was John David Washington's favorite movie growing up. <laughs> I, I can understand that. Like this one was a big deal. This is a movie that is so cheesily earnest that it kind of works. Yeah, there, there's some cheese factor that's a little annoying, but it's not bad. It's really counteracted by the fact that this movie is not afraid to show the war in how freaking bloody it was. Mm, yeah. Because they're not fucking around <laughs> with how grotesque the war was. Everybody's doing a really good job. It's just a little... It's a little full of itself, but in a charming way instead of an eye-rolling way. Well, I, can, I, I can believe that, I guess. I don't know. There, There is something about this movie that in the last moments, which are truly one of the most emotional manipulation scenes in a war movie that you can have. Oh, sure. It still feels earned in a weird way. I, I think the cast has a lot to do with that. I mean, it, there are some like, I guess I don't not so much cheesy, but just like, yes, this feels like the let's come together moment of like this story. But they did such a good job making you like really care about who these characters were that that slight cheese factor was like, yeah, OK. Yeah. I don't know. It It is an interesting movie because it's it's not a movie that I would call like, wow, what an amazing epic. But it is a movie that I'm like. Despite the flaws, I still love it for how earnest it was willing to tell a story that it, it does a pretty good job of, too, as we mm -hmm. get into the history of this. They do a really good job of telling it while also making it palatable, because if you told this whole story in its full detail, it would be rough. <laughs> it's already pretty tough. Oh, yeah. The budget for this film was $18 million. That equates to about $43 million in today's money. Okay. Its gross was $27 million. It's about $64,500,000. Okay. It's not a huge success, but again, this was a bit of a niche story. Sure. And by all accounts, this is a lot of newcomers making a big step. Oh, yeah. Including our director. Mm, okay. This is a cast of very, very good actors who are still relatively early in their career mm -hmm. with a brand new director who somehow pull it together to make a really great movie. 
And it's also a really important movie because it is very possibly the first major motion picture to actually portray a black unit in the Civil War. Okay, cool. Movies like 1965 Shenandoah had referred to the history of black soldiers being employed, but nobody had ever shown it. Okay. And this was the movie that was like, we're finally going to fucking tell the story. Mm-hmm. Now, they do it in a bit of a white savior framing. Oh, oh, for sure. But what I appreciate is that for a movie from 1989, there has to be a level here to watching this of like, this is like 25 years old. It's, it's dated as hell. And yet it does a lot of work to try to resist that narrative. It is very tempered. And I feel like the, the aim here was we want to tell a story about these soldiers, but we have to have a way in there. And just following, following one or two of these men would not have been realistic. So, I mean, I think it makes sense to go an officer route. And of course, that would have been a white man. Yeah. Um, that's your way into this world. But I don't think they spend a lot of time on him. Like, not in a bad way, but they're like, hey, this is our guy that we're going to follow into this situation. But then we're going to really focus on the actual soldiers. And it helps that the actual history mm-hmm. was that way. So as we get into our writing, the movie is based specifically off of the letters of Robert Gould Shaw. There's some two other people who get credit here for some books, but Shaw's letters are included in the film mm-hmm. and are the basis for a lot of the specifics of the, the battles and the historical events going on. Okay. Some of the details were fudged specifically for storytelling purposes. Sure. But the actual bare bones structure is based off of his firsthand account. Okay. So it really comes to that the actual history would have been this way. You're going to have a white officer in the army. The North was never going to allow black officers. Like the North was just as racist as the South in a lot of ways. Okay. The difference is, is that the North refuse to allow slavery. Of course. And as we see in this film, what that means is very different to whoever you ask. Shaw himself was the son of an abolitionist. Okay. His parents were big-time abolitionists. He was an abolitionist. But as has been pointed out many times, abolitionists had their own racism issues. Oh, yeah. That is very complicated to get into here. But it, it, I do find it interesting that... The, the framing was that way because that was the account they had to work from. If they were going to work from firsthand accounts, the biggest one they had was Shaw's own writing. Okay. So it was really natural to just go, well, of course we're going to go through him to show this whole story. It also helps by tempering things because we can lean on, yeah, he was the guy. He was really there and we're really going from what he said. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just making the characters three-dimensional so that instead of him being the savior of these men, it's just he was put in charge to lead these men into battle. Yeah. What does that look like? And if you just tell that story, you don't have to worry about any of the rest of it. (laughs) There are two other authors who this stuff was based on. There is Peter Burchard, who wrote a book, One Gallant Rush, Robert Gouldshaw and His Brave Black Regiment in 1965. Mm -hmm. And then Lincoln Kirstein 
who wrote a sort of a coffee table book type thing called Lay This Laurel, which compiled essays, poems, and photos about the St. Godin Memorial in Boston Common, which we see at the end of the film. That is the plaque statue that shows Shaw leading his regiment, and it sits at the Beacon Street entrance of the Massachusetts State Capitol. Okay. That statue is what inspired our screenwriter to write this story. I like it. Kirstein was also the co-founder and administrative head of the New York City Ballet and the School of American Ballet. Oh, okay. But he was like a man of all trades, all arts. He was in so many different artistic and scholarly pursuits in New York City. So he just got his hand in all these sorts of interesting artistic projects, including the story of the memorial. And our screenwriter is Kevin Jarre. Now, he's not a big name. Before this, he wrote Rambo First Blood Part 2. And after this, he wrote Tombstone, The Devil's Own, and The Mummy. He doesn't have a lot of credits, but they're pretty good credits. Those are good credits. Can't get mad about that. And even more notable is that he is the adopted son of the very legendary film composer Maurice Charest. Okay. Who is, you? if you hear any of that man's scores, you instantly know who he is. Uh, we might have a mention of him later in this series. Oh, okay. I already stated what I like about the writing. What do you think about the writing of this movie? I do think they chose wisely for uh, the, the framework. I, I think that's well. And I do like that the soldiers are, they're, they're each a little different. And, you know, I, they're each supposed to stand in for a different person's experience uh, of how they might have come to serve in the military there. But it's, it doesn't feel forced. And I think that's a really big deal because oftentimes when we get these types of movies, the, morality or the strength of character aspect or you know the triumph over adversity is so hammered in and here they didn't do any of that which i really really appreciate and i i I, that's a credit to how it was written i feel like they they didn't do the typical thing of just setting up tropes and then playing them through the story Mm -hmm. they put these guys in a, a a trope or metaphorical position Sure. And then built all of these rich character textures around that. Mm-hmm. And the writing to me is really what makes the movie so much better and more honest and earnest than it would be if it was just a straight like war drama. Because that richness of character and that and that time that we spend with each of those guys mm-hmm. is what sells it. Oh yeah. It's in a weird way, it's almost like Dirty Dozen-esque, but we don't we don't dwell quite as long with each guy like we no. do in the Dirty Dozen. Um, we spend enough time to get to know their personalities, to know what their vested interest is and, and what their problems are with the situation they're in, and all mm-hmm. of these different complicating factors. So by the end, when they are finally all unified in one moment, you feel it. When they have to march into certain deaths. Yeah. Like, that's a choice. They knew what was going to happen to them. Yes. And you care about all of them. Yeah. (laughs) Which is not the norm for war movies. It's really not. And especially war movies that are, you know, these kind of glossy historical pictures. Yes. So, to me, 
the core is so strong that, and, and I don't hate the directing, but even if you had a very mediocre director, mm-hmm. this movie would still be good. What helps is that you have a director who's a little bit better than that, a little bit green, but everybody gets the story and the idea. And so literally everybody else can go like, oh, great, we've got this really great thing to work with here. So it's just really good. It is. It is just really good. Um, One little fun bit of writing in history. The script opens with Shaw writing a letter to his mother as the army relaxes before battle. In that letter, he states, you mustn't think that any of us are to be killed. They are collecting such a force here that an attack would be insane. The next title card reads Antietam Creek, Maryland. (laughs) That would be the Battle of Antietam, which was the single bloodiest day in American history. Really? Okay. Wow. So many men died that day. So it's it's a nice little juxtaposition and it it sets the tone very quickly for we're not just going to show you war. We're going to show you like how bad it was. Yeah. This is one of the rare cases where you get an R-rated movie and it's purely for violence and you still go, yeah, it was probably warranted on this one. Because they pushed that and it was for a good purpose. Mm -hmm. I think it's really necessary to show that level of violence to get the point across of this is the gruesomeness that you were facing. Yeah. Regardless of how you enlisted, whether you were black or white, if you enlisted, this was the kind of danger you were putting yourself in. And it was rough out there. Oh, yeah. Now let's talk about the history because it is a bit more complicated it's very more complicated but i think what the movie does serves to tell a bigger story and not in a patronizing way robert Grohlshaw was 25 at the time of the offer of this regiment and matthew broderick being a young-faced guy especially in the late 80s really does fit that bill he does however shaw had a lot more prejudice than this movie would account for okay He took a lot longer to accept this role. He actually rejected the command once, citing concerns over his advancement and career. So he wasn't Mr. Pure, I'm going to take this job on. And his letters in the first half of the war show him a lot more ambiguous about emancipation. Of course, he was an abolitionist, but as he said after Antietam and hearing of Lincoln's proclamation, he stated, quote, For my part, I can't see what practical good it can do now. Wherever our army has been, there remain no slaves, and the proclamation will not free them where we don't go, unquote. Hmm. He's an army guy. Yeah. He is very much a military man, and he is a career military man. Mm-hmm. He is an abolitionist, but he's in it for himself. Mm. He is not a complete selfless figure. Shocking. Yeah. I mean, there, there are no perfect heroes. And I feel like there's a cool version of this story that you could tell where you show this guy being super reluctant, but then standing up for what's right. And by all accounts of history, that's how it worked out, is that he was incredibly reluctant. And then over time, he came into the, the feeling and statement of where he ends up, which is, I don't care what race they are. They're soldiers. I'm going to treat them as soldiers. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. All of the history suggests that that is the truth. Well, I certainly hope that that's the truth. Yes. Uh, I, I know that's n- not likely, but I can hope. I mean, there. here's the thing. There is a ton of history on this, and we're going to go through it, but 
especially as we get to the details about the battles, they're very close to reality. Okay, I like that. That's important. Yes. There are names that have been completely changed and characters that have been kind of created from whole cloth. Shaw and Morse were the only two soldiers who were actual people and names. Um, And in fact, Morse was not a part of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment. Henry Cabot Forbes, who is Carrie Elway's character, uh, was actually based on a gentleman named Edward Needles Hallowell. He became the leader of the 54th Regiment after Shaw's death. Oh, okay. However, as we get into the battles, the burning of Darien, Georgia, was actually one of the most accurate scenes in the film. When they go to the, the one town with the other regiment, who is ordered to just burn everything to the ground. <laughs> Shaw was, in fact, concerned about the burning with Montgomery. He told him, I don't think this is a good idea, and... The lines spoken by Colonel Montgomery in that scene, when he orders the burning of Darien, were his actual words quoted in Shaw's letters. Oh, wow. Quote, secession has got to be swept away by the hand of God like the Jews of old, unquote. That's unfortunate. (laughs) And it's in the movie. Wow. They did not pull punches when it came to actual historical dialogue for this movie. I do respect that. I, I respect it because, again, too often they will soften it one way or another. Like some filmmakers really want to flirt that line with war of Northern aggression shit. I mean, I I will say this with the exception of, you know, our, our hero, Robert Shaw, he's the only one I feel like they try to make out is like, he's not a bad dude. Purely sympathetic. Yes. Yeah. Cabot, Cabot Forbes gets his due at the end. Sure. (laughs) But it takes a while, but it's definitely bullshit. But the Union Army, for, for a lot of people, were just as bad. There are some great guys. By all accounts, Ulysses S. Grant was actually a pretty cool dude. But there were some real rough apples in that batch. However, Shaw did not threaten to expose General Hunter. His relationship with Montgomery was actually way more complex because he actually respected Montgomery's commitment to abolition and the need to completely restructure Southern society. So even if he didn't like the idea of, like, actually burning things to the ground, metaphorically, Shaw was very much in favor of that. Nevertheless, he also was friends with an unabashed racist because Montgomery was not a good dude. And in Shaw's own words, he was Montgomery was a, quote, very conscientious man and, quote, he is very attractive to me. And indeed, I have taken a fancy to him, unquote. Ah, white dudes. White dudes. Shaw actually spent a good amount of time away from the men, including during their training. This was because he was engaged a few weeks before the regiment shipped off for its first action. Oh, okay. So he he really wasn't hands-on for a lot of that early part of it. Well, I think that's actually relatively well depicted because he's not. He's distant, for sure. Yeah. But they're, they're doing that in the essence of, like, he he refuses to treat them as peers when he knows he has to train soldiers. Mm-hmm. And there is a hierarchy for a reason. The biggest license that the movie takes and could be seen as problematic mm-hmm. is the choice to make the enlisted men formerly enslaved men. Okay. The 54th Massachusetts were all made up of primarily free black men from Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York. It was in the North. Okay. So almost none of the men in that regiment would have been slaves. To be fair, 
there were regiments made up of freed slaves in more southern located areas of the Union. Mm -hmm. But the Massachusetts was up north. Yeah, the likelihood would have been very, very low. This was very intentional on the filmmakers' part because they wanted to give that arching narrative of men being taken from slavery to having freedom. And like I said, that, that wasn't untrue for a lot of black regiments, but for the 54th Mass, it's historically inaccurate. That's fair. Also, the 54th Massachusetts never lacked for supplies like they do in this film. Okay. Governor Andrew, who we see mentioned early on in the film, actually gave them all the supplies they ever needed. Okay. And unfortunately or not, it, again, it depends on how you want to see this, the flogging scene with Trip, which is one of the most iconic scenes in the film, mm -hmm. would have been illegal in the army. They had banned the practice in the Union Army by this point. I mean, that's good. All of this is to say that the dramatic license it's taking into history is intentional. And yeah. it's doing so to try to tell the bigger story of black men fighting in the Civil War for the Union. Mm -hmm. If we made this movie now, this would not play nearly as sufficiently. And I don't think should be treated the same. Mm hmm. For the first movie to ever do this in 1989, I kind of understand these choices. Yes. I mean, it's a difficult it's a difficult one because it's especially like some of the biggest scenes in the movie are very much not true to what would have happened. No, but I do understand that they were kind of in a place where it's like we have to make it so that people that we have to lower the bar for entry for the white people. <laughs> a little bit, right? We we need to make it very obvious what the dynamic is here. Yes. And we're going to pound that. And again, it's why I speak to like, I think what's what's interesting is that, again, that plays cheesy, but at the same time, it's also earnest mm -hmm. because they're like, we are not going to let you forget about the power dynamics going on in this situation. Sure. Because you've got to understand that. I think it's really like you make this movie in 2022, it's overkill. You could probably tell the story in a more nuanced way. But for what it did in its time, it still feels pretty prescient and relevant. Yeah. Talking about the the battle and stuff, the battle at Fort Wagner is incredibly close to accurate. Shaw was actually witnessed releasing his horse before the charge on Fort Wagner, as we see on screen in a really powerful moment of mm -hmm. like, nope, he's going to go march with his men and he knows he's not going to make it out. <laughs> yeah, I do like, I like the move to protect a horseman. Yep. Instead of Shaw giving that final line about the flag bearer, it was actually Brigadier General George Crockett Strong who addressed mm -hmm. the entire regiment. Strong pointed to the flag bearer and said, if this man should fall, who will lift the flag and carry it on? And it was Shaw who immediately replied, I will. So just as powerful a moment. Oh, yeah. Per the sources, Shaw actually got shot through the heart and fell into Fort Wagner instead of outside and falling down off the fort. Mm -hmm. And in fact, many of his men were killed trying to pull him out of the fort. Mm -hmm. At the end of the film, Shaw is thrown into a mass grave with other black soldiers. Officers would normally in wartime be given formal burials, but the Confederacy had so much disdain for black regiments that 
their officers, the white officers, were thrown into the mass graves with the soldiers, with zero honors. So after the war, Robert Gould Shaw's parents visited the grave site in South Carolina. Mm. When they were asked if they wanted to have Shaw exhumed to be returned to Boston, they declined. And his father said, quote, We would not have his body removed from where it lies, surrounded by his brave and devoted soldiers. We can imagine no holier place than that in which he lies among his brave and devoted followers, nor wish for him better company. What a bodyguard he has, unquote. No. <laughs> Legit sweet. The actual history of this is so good. That's like awesome. Sometimes you read the history and you're like, oh boy, y'all did a whole lot of hack job. And instead on this one, it's like, hey, the movie's history is cool. And then the actual history is even fucking cooler. I like it. Right? To be fair, the epitaph that Fort Wagner was, quote, never taken is not exactly true. Mm Mm-hmm. After the failure of this assault, Union General Quincy Adams Gilmore laid siege to Fort Wagner. They kept a constant bombardment and dug zigzag trenches over the next six weeks, inching closer to the fort. Eventually, the water supply was contaminated by the decomposing bodies of Union soldiers in mass graves. Nice. All of that crap the Confederates did, they poisoned their own water. And on September 7th, 1863, they had to abandon the fort which let the Union forces immediately take it over, who kept it through the end of the war. While the crowning achievement of the 54th Regiment was the attack on Fort Wagner, it was such a huge symbolic moment for the Union Army. That regiment did serve through the end of the war. They lost about half of the the soldiers in the regiment, Mm -hmm. but they kept going. At the Battle of Alusti in Florida, members pushed a broken train with wounded Union soldiers for 13 miles using horses to get them to safety. And Sergeant William Carney, as part of the 54th, went on to be the first black American to win the Medal of Honor, though he would not actually get awarded it until 37 years after the battle at Fort Wagner. And one little fun note, um, because we talk about a lot of these men... In the actual regiment were free. Two of the men in the regiment were Lewis and Charles Douglas, the sons of Frederick Douglas. Oh, wow. They were actually the first New Yorkers to enlist in the 54th and 55th Infantries, and Lewis actually became the lieutenant major. So the character that Morgan Freeman plays, that would have actually been one of Frederick Douglas's sons. That's cool. They immediately volunteered. They were like, mm-mm, we get to fight for freedom? We're in. We're going. Woo. Again, I love the fact that the history is even cooler than the movie and it doesn't take away from the movie. Yeah, no. And like the movie is very good. Like there's there's no bones about that. The movie's yeah. very good. And so to find out that the history, like one of the things about these movies is that it's it's supposed to make you want to go learn more about the history. And so to learn more, so to learn more and to have it be better is really, really cool. And I think what I love even more is that in the, in the real history, Shaw is flawed. He's yeah. a flawed guy without bad attitudes because if you were a white person in the 1860s, you were a racist. Like, let's be very clear. Sure. There was no way around it. It just depended on what kind of racist you were. However, not only did he come to embrace his men and lead them, mm-hmm. by all accounts, he, he believed them to be his peers and equals. They were his subordinates in battle. But they were also his soldiers who he cared for. Yeah. 
And that is the that's the story. And the movie tells that story. It tells it in a different way, but it's still the same history. Mm -hmm. It's really cool to know that despite all of those flaws, he still came to that same conclusion. Mm -hmm. That makes the movie worth it, too, because, you know, it's not just a bunch of made up bullshit. This guy was the real deal. Yeah. Even if he had his own problematic views. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get into our director. This is a gentleman that you probably have heard of, although you might not remember his name. Okay. This is Edward Zwick. Yeah, that's not a name I'm familiar with. Before this, he directed a bunch of TV movies and About Last Night. After this, he directed Leaving Normal, Legends of the Fall, Courage Under Fire, The Siege, The Last Samurai, Blood Diamond, Defiance, Love and Other Drugs, Pawn Sacrifice, Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, and Trial by Fire. Legends of the Fall, The Last Samurai, Blood Diamond. Yeah, I'm familiar. Edswick is a man who makes gauzy, but also slightly violent period piece movies. It's weird, because this is his bread and butter, and yet this was pretty much his major debut. About Last Night was a romance based on a David Mamet play. Nice. So, uh, this is a big deal. What do we think of Edswick's directing in this movie? I think he did a fantastic job. Ooh. Fantastic. Do tell. I think he just lets the moments lie. It'd be very easy to try to like overact this. And he doesn't. He doesn't push it too far. It's a little gauzy for my tastes. Sure. Like he's there's there's a whole lot of scenes, even in like brutal scenes where it's like, did we really have to put the Vaseline on the lens for this one? Yeah. But on the other hand, again, there's these sort of hazy moments mixed in with these really bleak dark moments of holy shit this war's violent yeah he's bold the other movie i've seen of his was the last samurai which i really enjoyed i've not seen that one i think what is interesting about his directing style is he very much does that i'm going to make a very beautiful movie that also contains a whole lot of really horrible stuff in it okay that's fair. Especially with some of these historical movies. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to be afraid to get bold with how willing I am to like show you the actual detail of this whole stuff. Like I'm not going to hold back just to just because it would be more palatable. He's he he really does push the shot <laughs> and push the moment. You know, one of the things he intentionally placed the goriest shot in the movie, a soldier's head being blown apart at Antietam at the very beginning of the film. And the entire purpose was to say, this is how violent this is going to be. I'm not just going to show you guys getting shot and falling over and you don't mm -hmm. see anything. And I like that. It's, it's the right choice. It's the right choice for when you need to show people the actual stakes of what's going on. <laughs> yes. And so many other directors would not do that. More than likely because the studio told them you can't do that. Mm -hmm. And this guy, who hasn't really done a whole lot and is still very young, is like, no, if we're going to tell the story, we've got to tell it right. Yeah, we got to do it. And then tagging on to what you say of like letting the moments with the characters happen and unfold yeah. and letting them do what they need to do to get it. It, it works really well. Zwick was understandably very nervous about being a young, white, Jewish director telling a very, very black story. I mean, correct. <laughs> yes. However, throughout the filming, he got the support 
of everyone in the cast, many of whom actually spoke about how grateful they were for his willingness to step in and try to tackle it. Mm. So he gained a lot of respect for just saying, we're just going to tell the story and I'm here and I'm going to make it. There were tons of scenes and subplots that were cut from the final film. I think the original cut for this was like four hours long. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's too much. It's too much, but I almost would like to see a director's cut. Okay, yeah, I'm, that's fair, because what he did was really good, but yeah. I do think the editing, the edit down is great. It really is. Um, a lot of it were scenes of Shaw and Cavett Forbes attending school together, a lot more interactions between Shaw and his wife, Sarah. There was a lot more explaining, I think, Shaw's background, mm. which I think he made the right choice for this film to be like, Shaw's not really the main character. The regiment is the main character. Mm. Like, if we spend all this time with Shaw, it really does all become about him. And it shouldn't be. For the flogging scene, Zwick claims that Washington was lashed at full contact with a whip designed not to cut skin. Mm. So it actually stung, but it wouldn't wouldn't cause any damage. On the final take... As just a mistake, Zwick hesitated before calling cut, mm-hmm. and that moment was when Denzel's tear went down his cheek. Oh, wow. Nothing I saw was him like intentionally doing that. It sounds like he was like focusing on something and didn't yell cut at the right moment, but he got that shot. Yeah. And, of course, the tension was incredibly high on the day they filmed that sequence. Yeah, Fair and appropriate. He also was incredibly upset and nervous about filming. Oh, sure. By all accounts, he knew where he stood on this mm-hmm. and, and his position as a, as a white person mm-hmm. in a position of privilege as the director of this film. Sure. And took great lengths to make sure everybody was okay with what they were doing in any given moment. Well, that's awesome. Which is really... of what you need from a director for this movie. Yeah. It really is. I mean, honestly, that's where we need everyone to be. Yes. I mean, it should be the bare minimum, obviously. It it should be the floor, not the ceiling. Yes. And yeah, I just, I mean, I'm glad. (laughs) I'm very glad that that's how that worked. It reminds me a little bit of what we heard a little bit about Steven Spielberg during The Color Purple. Yes. And then also like his acknowledgement that they probably weren't the best person to be doing this story and they probably wouldn't do it again in the future. Yeah. Or if they could have done it over again, they wouldn't have. Now, now Zwick doesn't get to claim that because the last samurai's the last yeah. samurai's rightly criticized for a white savior narrative. I mean, it's got Tom Cruise in it, so yeah. Yeah. But it's a really cool movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've never seen that one. So finally, this one though, great job. Mm-hmm. Great job by all. And in order to keep the look bleak, Zwick used fogged machines to try to obscure literally any blue sky. Oh, okay. They also used lycopodium powder to simulate the shell bursts going on. The powder ignites instantly when it's exposed to a flame, creating a phosphorescent ball of light for just a split second on frame. Hmm, okay. But that leads us to what really, I think, seals this movie being as good as it is and that is our cast our cast is phenomenal it's really good it really is and we start with matthew broderick as colonel robert gould shaw now we're not going to mention his credits because we just talked about him in our 90s series 
We did. We did in The Cable Guy. Oh, yeah. But to, to give you a point of reference for Broderick in this movie, this would have been just after Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, you can kind of tell by how baby-faced he is. And it's just like, I remember we were watching this and I was like, oh, yeah, like this is his, like, I need to not be seen as a child. Yeah. And he's, to be very clear, he'd done tons of stage work in between all of that stuff. Oh, yeah. And did a lot of more serious roles. But this was very much the, I'm no longer going to be the the little kid or like 20 something adult anymore. I'm going to be a fucking grown up. I'm not going to be the guy who just looks like a kid. I, I am not going to do this anymore, which was good. It was time to stop. Yeah. And I mean, of course, he was <laughs> his age is so wildly out of place because of his face, because like, oh. I think he was probably mid 30s or something. <laughs> Oh yeah, I think he was probably like 28 when he did when he did Bueller. Yeah, it was it's all weird and jumbled. He's very good. He is very good. Subtle, which is one of Broderick's specialties. Oh sure. But then like when he has to get mad, he goes for it. That scene, that scene at the shooting range, just like this is some of the best acting I've ever seen Matthew Broderick do. Mm. A good man can fire three aim shots in a minute. Major Forbes. Give me a Colt revolver. One. Your gun. Give it to me. Faster. Reload. Quickly. Faster. Faster. Load. Faster. Do it. Do it. Do it! Do it! Teach them properly, Major. I, I think what it is is there's so much meat for him to chew on because he was in so many just like silly comedies or, you know big goofy sci-fi movies like something like war games it's not like there's a lot of script for him to mess around with there sure in this one there's so much on the page for him to play Mm -hmm. and he does this wonderful thing of being that sort of matthew broderick shy reserved nervous guy Mm -hmm. but very realistic oh yeah that's the cool part and then he's got so much to chew on of like i cannot just sit by and let these guys do whatever they want to do. But at the same time, I've got to recognize that they are different soldiers than others I would lead. Mm -hmm. He has to figure out this whole balance. And the whole time you're seeing the gears turning in his head, every time he walks by from the moment he makes that order to, to have trip tied up to the moment when he walks over and talks to John Rollins, Morgan Freeman's character, mm-hmm. and then realizes, oh shit, I didn't even think about why he was going out. Yeah. And the fact that it had nothing to do with him deserting. So there's all these moments, and he's he's like the most reactive character in the movie, which is weird for your lead actor to do. I think that actually really works because yeah. his eyes are being opened to something. Yes. He's learning. Yes. So yeah, that's good. 
And Matthew Broderick is one of the best reactive character actors that we have. In fact, he was Zwick's first choice for this role. Really? And I don't think the studios were into it. I don't have who could have been betters, but like, I don't think they were excited about him as the star for this movie. But he, Edward Zwick was like, Mm-mm, I want that guy. And he nailed it. Mm-hmm. That's the perfect guy to cast. One note, Broderick said that the battle sequences did not require him to act. He was very afraid of all the loud explosions happening around him on set. I love that. Because he is the most nervous man alive. He plays nervous very well. Next, we move on to Denzel Washington playing Private Trip. We also mentioned him in her 90s series with the Pelican Brief. And also, he's Denzel fucking Washington. Mm-hmm. How do we feel about Denzel in this movie? He's amazing. Oh, my fucking God. There's like, I remember when Training Day came out and people were like, oh, who's this badass Denzel? Like, who is this guy? And I'm like, I'm watching Glory and I'm like, that's that guy. It's all there. Denzel was always there. Oh, I know. But like that vibe, because for a long time in the 90s, he was playing like the detective, the cop, like the nice guy, like the intense, but good guy. Like and then he did training day and it was like he's a like I mean, he's just the shit. But I also think back to Malcolm X when he is still the shit. Oh, yeah. Here's the thing. Denzel shows Denzel's never bad. Never. Sometimes the movie's bad. Denzel's yeah. not bad. Nope. <laughs> like Mail Street. Always good. Movie can be bad. They're not bad. But this is, I mean, this really is just a a huge especially in his career, this was a huge moment. He was very hesitant about the role. For obvious reasons. How could you not be? But very quickly in reading the script, he realized this was going to be one of his first opportunities to get to be a fully fleshed out character. This was the first like big acting, acting moment for Denzel. Now, Malcolm X made him a movie star. Yeah. But this was the first moment where everybody was like, holy shit. I mean, yeah. Where we, where we went like, this guy's really good on this TV show. And then, oh my God, he's one of our greatest actors. Yeah. And you see all of it in Trip. Mm-hmm. I mean, he goes through an entire hero's journey in this movie. He really does. And it's not just the script. That's all coming out of Denzel. Yes. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And it's so wild because it's like, yeah, he's not the main guy in this movie. Nobody is, but he's not. He's part of an ensemble. And yet even then you're just like, oh, shit. Yep. Now we move on to a man who I hope has redeemed himself after our last time talking about him. Mm-hmm. It is Carrie Elways playing Major Cabot Forbes. Yeah. Before this, he was in Another Country, Oxford Blues, Lady Jane, and The Princess Bride. After this, Days of Thunder, Hot Shots, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, The Chase, Twister, Liar Liar, Kiss the Girls, Cradle Will Rock, The Cat's Meow, Saw, Ella Enchanted, Edison, Factory Girl, Georgia Rule, Flying Lessons, Saw 3D, The Adventures of Tintin, Armed Response, She Loves Me Not, Sugar Mountain, Stranger Things, Black Christmas, A Castle for Christmas, and coming soon, he will be in Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. Ooh. What do we think of Carrie Elwes in this movie? He's a jackass. Yeah, but only in that way Carrie Elwes can be. But, but yeah, he's fine. His redemption later on is pretty fucking great. 
it, it he does okay i mean i don't think he's doing anything special a ton of his footage got cut oh okay that all that stuff that we cut on the cutting room floor mm-hmm. a lot of his stuff is what got cut out of the movie oh okay so i imagine the director's cut we would have more to talk about with carrie elways okay. for sure i find him interesting some of this is the way he's written in that yeah he's a bit of a jackass mm-hmm. but also he's weirdly the a humanizing force for shaw okay because somewhere in the middle forbes is like hey i know what you're thinking here mm-hmm. and i understand that you feel the need to take full control but you have to understand that we're dealing with a group of men who have a completely different experience from us mm-hmm. like there there are some moments in there that he gets and it's not they're not always butting heads because you know they're rivals Sometimes they're butting heads because Forbes is absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. But again, at the end of the movie in the battle scene, he's one of the most fun to watch because he's come full character arc around. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, Carrie always is being a badass right now, which is also not something you get that much from him. You see him swashbuckle. You don't see him be like, I'm going to murder some Confederate soldiers. (laughs) And I'm like, good for you. Good for you. According to Ed Zwick, Elwes and Broderick could not stand working together. Really? I will say this is about around the time Broderick was having some pretty rough personal troubles. Mm. I don't know if this is at the time of the car wreck, but it's close to it. Okay. So Matthew Broderick had some moments of not great decision making in his life. It's entirely possible he was an asshole. (laughs) Entirely possible Carrie Elwes was an asshole too, though. I mean, that feels on brand. <laughs> I will say, though, Carrie, you have redeemed yourself from Saw. You, you did a good job here. Yeah, maybe. He's better than Saw, Diana. Give him credit. But I don't wanna. All right, finally, let's talk about the voice of God himself, Morgan Freeman, playing Sergeant Major John Rollins. I have all of his credits here. I'm not gonna bother. Yeah, it's Morgan fucking Freeman. So the one thing to give you context in his career. Sure. This is in between his other notable performance from that same year mm-hmm. in Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, geez. And then he went on to do narration work on Ken Burns' The Civil War. After oh, this, okay. All which right. Which would have been his first big narration that he worked on. Okay. So, and then of course he's narrated and been a spokesperson for so many different things because of his distinctive voice. As amazing and electric as Denzel is, Morgan is just so solid as a rock. Yeah. He's just good. I mean, he's so consistent. Yeah. And he's just, he's hes Morgan fucking Freeman. He's amazing. It, it's interesting too, because like in lesser movies that he's in, he just always comes off as consistent and stoic. Put him in a movie with a really good script, something mm-hmm. like A Million Dollar Baby, which we watched. Yeah. Or especially this, and then the humor and the charm come out. Yeah. And the levels to his acting. When you get him with that really good script, it's really cool because then you get, oh, that's right. He's got all these other layers mm-hmm. <laughs> that when you put him in just like some simple action movie, he's just like even keel guy. Yeah. And I love that he. He's fully willing to be the peacemaker. Yeah. And he will he will put somebody in their place, but he'll only do it 
if it's for the good of the regiment. Sure. Part of it is all of our leaders, all of our bosses are white guys. It, all it has to take is one thing for them to turn on us. Absolutely. So he's playing both sides in a smart way. Like he wants to, he wants to lead. He wants, I mean, you can tell by just his actions what he wants to do, but he's not, not going to help out his fellow soldiers just because he's not boss guy. He would lead regardless of his rank. Yeah. Which is why he's given the sergeant major position. Yeah. That's why he's made an NCO because they look at him and go, you're a natural leader no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. And we need you to help us yeah, so that we can work with the men. Mm-hmm. It, it's really what it boils down to. Everything about this is the alternate universe of this is how armies are supposed to work. Yeah. In a very weird, interesting way. But it's like, it's true. That's why the hierarchy exists. That's why you have non-commissioned officers, because you need somebody who is an actual true-born leader to stand in and be that go-between between between the the higher-ups and the men. Mm -hmm. That's what you need. Freeman had served in the Air Force, so he used that experience serving in order to guide how the relationships formed between everybody. Mm -hmm. He stated that during his time in the Air Force, friendships are made according to strengths and compliments. Nothing is just made easily. Hmm which plays out in the fucking movie. Yeah. All of these men come to bond with each other by what they accomplish together, not by who they are. Okay. Because they're all so different. All of all of the main characters that we have, they're all unique and different to each other. They come together out of just working on these things. Mm-hmm. And that leads us into our Arpons. Friend and people of note. We have Andre Brower playing Corporal Thomas Searles. Homicide in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's a hell of a character actor. And this was his feature film debut. That is fucking nuts. Yeah. Not only that, but the fact that he back-to-backed this with Homicide, which like turned him into Mr. Stentorian Detective Dude. Sure. And this is a totally different role. Oh, yeah. I know. It's so good. It is so good. Oh, he's so sweetly innocent and not in a way that feels patronizing to his character. No, no. They do a very good job of like trying to make sure his character's sympathetic as opposed to pathetic. Yeah. Anyone can empathize with any one of these characters Mm -hmm. throughout the movie. And that is a hard trick to pull off. Sure. Because you're always going to want to latch onto one, but you get and understand and feel for every single person, including some of the assholes. Oh, you yeah. You get why they're doing what they're doing. You don't like them, but you get it. Uh, Donovan Leach Jr. playing Captain Charles Fassenden Morse. Uh, he previously played Gerald Malanga in I Shot Andy Warhol. Ooh. Bob Gunton playing General Charles Garrison Harker, the really bad guy. Uh, He is a fixture of the 90s, most notably as Warden Norton in The Shawshank Redemption. Okay. One of the greatest that guys. J.O. Sanders playing General George Crockett Strong, who's the general at the end. Uh, He's a square-jawed that guy who's been in a ton of movies and by his looks is like the proto-David Harbour. I do love David Harbour. He was like the 90s version of him. It's weird. Okay. Richard Reilly playing the Quartermaster. He's a great comedic and dramatic actor who's been in a ton of movies 
He is probably best known to us as the jump to conclusions guy in Office Space. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I knew that who he was. Peter Michael Getz playing Francis George Shaw, the father. He was the father of the groom in Father of the Bride and Father of the Bride Part 2. Afemo Omilami playing one of the tall contraband. He was the drill sergeant in Forrest Gump. Mark Margolis playing the 10th Connecticut soldier. He is, of course, a fantastic character actor who had a huge resurgence in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul as Hector Salamanca or Theo. Theo. Oh, that character's badass. Great actor. He's barely in the movie, but he's super fun. Yeah. Jane Alexander playing Sarah Blake Sturgis Shaw, who was intended to have a bigger role, but she got cut. Um, She was the best friend of Ted Kramer in Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, okay. Her role is actually, you you know she was intended for a bigger role because the poster and trailer credits hugely promoted her in the actual cast credits. That's unfortunate for her. But she she got pushed out on the cutting room floor. Again, unfortunate, but also to the betterment of the film. Yeah, it wasn't about her. No. Like, if if this no was sense. a four-hour movie with the first like hour and a half all about Robert Gould Shaw, this movie's bad. Yeah. <laughs> then it really is a white savior narrative. Dude. Kevin R. Hirschberger playing a Confederate soldier. He actually went on to study with the Virginia Military Institute and graduated and served as a military intelligence officer. He now directs and produces scores of historical reenactments and recreations of history for TV, museums, films, and documentaries. All of his credits are like this documentary show and this museum piece and all of this stuff. So he took this film and his military studies into an entire career. (laughs) It's pretty cool. And then finally... Kevin Jarre, the writer, is the white soldier who gives them shit from the Connecticut and is super racist, but then at the end yells, give him hell, 54. That is the writer of the movie. Pretty cool. Fun stuff. All right. Awards. Award. This is Oscar bait. Come on. Yeah, I knew. I, I, I knew who was getting an award. It was nominated for five Oscars. Okay. It won for Best Cinematography. It's, I don't know. It beat The Abyss and Born on the Fourth of July. And I'm sorry, The Abyss is one of the most gorgeous movies. Hmm. The Abyss is incredible. It won for Best Sound. It beat The Abyss and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Interesting. Don't have as much of a problem with that one. The sound, the explosion sound, and especially at the end, my God, it's loud and intense. Mm-hmm. Best Art Set Decoration, it lost to Batman. Yeah, okay. As well it should have. I mean, this this is just a long-standing problem that I have is when, if I have to choose between historical accuracy and wonderfully executed fantasy, I'm going over, I'm going to fantasy because historical ain't that hard. You're matching archives. And yes, there is a very big design element to that. I'm not shitting on that at all. There is a craft and an art to it. However, I choose fantasy. I mean, boo Tim Burton. Everybody hates Tim Burton, but Batman is a beautiful movie. It's Michael Keaton Batman, so it's good. Yeah, no, just ugh, Tim Burton. Best editing. This movie lost to Born on the Fourth of July. Mm, okay. And finally, winning Best Supporting Actor, Denzel Washington. Yeah. Probably his biggest competition here was Danny Aiello and Do the Right Thing, who is incredible. Everyone in that movie is incredible. 
Mm-hmm. He also beat out Martin Landau for crimes and misdemeanors. But I mean, again, from the moment he comes on screen, he is absolutely electric. Yep. It really is a statement moment for him in his career. Mm-hmm. Originally, oh, yeah. shit. So well fucking earned, Denzel. All right. On to some minor points of trivia. I don't have a lot. Really? Okay. Civil War reenactors for the film took part voluntarily in the film without pay. Really? They came out and they were like, you're going to make this cool Civil War movie? We'll come out and be Civil War reenactors. Don't ask their opinions about politics, though. Early on in the film, we see a lot of Union soldiers playing baseball. There are many, many conflicting reports as to when baseball was actually invented. It's generally agreed that the Civil War was the biggest expansion for the sport's popularity in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both Union and Confederate soldiers played baseball, and they thus spread it across the country after the war. The first battle for the original 54th Massachusetts Regiment was at James Island, South Carolina, and was fought on July 16th, 1863. We sort of see it in that woodsy forest. They filmed that scene at the Girl Scout camp on Rosedew Island near Savannah, Georgia. Okay. (laughs) Uh, During filming, it began to snow, and so they had to bring heaters in to melt the snow so they could have the open air for a (laughs) supposed summer sequence. Awesome. Eh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. On the other hand, the Christmas at Camp Redville scene was filmed in March in Savannah, so they had to get snowblowers to come in to blow chipped ice onto the ground. Right. All of the party scenes early on in the movie were filmed in the home of Jim Williams, whose story from Savannah, Georgia, was the basis of the film Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Mm-hmm. The end title music of this film also shows up in the trailer for the film Backdraft. Really? Well, this is a James Horner special, okay? Like, this is a James Horner score. It's James Horner time. His stuff's going to show up everywhere that he works on it. And finally, the original site of Fort Wagner was eventually washed away by the ocean due to erosion. Mm -hmm. The Civil War Trust, a battlefield preservation society, acquired other land on Morris Island near Fort Wagner to preserve other fortifications for history. Okay. As a result of that, that washing away. And that leads us straight into our ratings. Ratings. Wow. Okay. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one, it's going to be those those rifles. Got to load it faster. Load it. They're coming right now. They're going to shoot you if you don't load it. Okay. How many rifles are you going to give this movie? Ooh, I'm going to start with you this time. Okay. Um, I'm just going with my gut here. I'm going to do a 4.5. Mostly because there is a special something that's just not there. Like, her yeah. cast is great. The story is great. The framework's pretty good. I enjoyed it. Like, I wasn't bored. Um, and it's not like, it's not a super long movie, but it's also not, like, short. But, like, there's there's a special something that's missing for me to push it to a five. It's a 4.5. Yeah, my gut tells me a four. I, I waffled back and forth on this in reviewing things. I think it's, again, to me, this is one of those interesting situations where I would typically rate a movie like this a lot lower. Mm-hmm because it leans into tropes and metaphors that are well-worn. However, it does it in this movie so earnestly and so honestly. Sure. And it does such a great job of telling its story that it's not a perfect movie. It is a bit eye-rolling and it's a little bit cheesy, but it's, on the other hand, also very upfront and honest about the story it's telling. Yes. It's one of those just, this is a really solid movie. It doesn't, it's not 
some sort of perfect, unique piece of cinema, but it's just really good. Yeah. And I think there's no there's no better score for something like that than a four. It's well worth watching. It's the history holds up remarkably well. I think I would probably enjoy it more if we got to see the version of the story where he is more complicated of a figure. But mm-hmm. even so, the story they were trying to tell was very different. And they were actually trying to keep Shaw kind of out of the focus of the story. I think they did a reasonable job with that. Yeah, absolutely. It They were doing something much bigger than just telling this guy's story. Mm-hmm. And they accomplished what they set out to do. It's just nothing monumental. So I think I'm just going to go four. But see it. it. It Again, there's a reason history teachers put it on their watch lists because it's very good depiction of history. Yeah. All right. Well, now let's go to another war, Diana, because most history is war. Yes, that's, that's what I've discovered. Pretty much. And let's go to maybe the most useless war that has ever been fought in history. You're going to have to narrow it World War One, because we are going to watch the 1930 film, mm-hmm. our oldest film at this point. Really? It's beaten um... The Invisible Man. All quiet on the Western front. I have seen this movie precisely one time in high school. Mm-hmm. I remember at first laughing at the cheesiness because it's a movie from 1930. Mm-hmm. And then about halfway through, I remember being totally harrowed and mortified. This one's intense. Really? I am very curious to see it again and how it holds up. But this movie deals with World War One in a remarkably honest way. Mm-hmm. And a unique way of selling a story. Okay. And I'm also interested because they just remade it in a German language version that okay. has come out on Netflix. Oh, okay. Cool. So we're going to have to double feature that. Uh, like one and a half features, I think, would be good. Okay. So until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.